This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Richard and myself have been up to Monday, December the 5th. Tom is on his travels. That includes quite the debate about planes on a phone phones on a plane. Snakes nowhere. Basically, some new rules coming out in Europe that will see 5G on planes and therefore phone calls from the guy sitting next to you. How do we feel about that? Well, the poll that we had up this morning, no one really liked it. We had Johanna Dovey, who is a telecoms media and technology consultant from Analysis Mason in the studio to tell us how it's going to work. We've also been looking at a new report from the IIF predicting 1.2% global growth, very slow growth for the economy next year. Jean Walters is a new economist at Emirates MBD. She's been going through those numbers with us. While Amina Becker, no stranger to regular listeners, uh, Deputy Bureau Chief and Chief OPEC correspondent at the Energy Intelligence Group, has been talking to us about the latest OPEC Plus meeting and what that no change policy really means. All of that, plus we've been looking at the new green building regulations here in the UAE with Ewan Lloyd, who is a construction lawyer from Altamimi & Co, asking what they could mean for the cost of construction. Let's look at some of our top stories this morning. Economics looming large. We had US jobs reports over the weekend, better than expected. And this report from the Institute of International Finance with a very gloomy forecast for the global economy. Yeah, and the jobs are a little bit of a double-edged sword. More jobs being added to the economy and particularly wages doing well as well. Uh, You think would be good news, but it does make people worry about what's going to happen with interest rates. Although we did um, have the the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, signalling that he was looking at something a little bit more moderate. That was the word, wasn't it? Moderate. So uh, despite those stronger jobs numbers, it seems that economy are still looking at 50 basis points for the next meeting. But let's hear from an actual economist. Uh, Jeanne Walters is the new economist at Emirates MBD. We had her in the studio this morning for the first time and we welcomed her in with something exceptionally cheerful, which was that Institute of International Finance report saying uh, that global growth next year was going to be just 1.2%. They say it's going to be uh, potentially as weak growth-wise, um, as 2009. We asked Jan if that lined up with what she was seeing. Well, I think the thing to remember is that um, in the last year, we've had a relatively unprecedented um, scale of monetary policy tightening that we've seen um, in you know many markets across the globe. Um, the US alone has seen four 75 basis point rate hikes this year. And obviously, we would expect um, all of that monetary tightening to really begin squeezing global growth. And so, you know, when you look at economies like um, the UK and the Eurozone, we're definitely expecting there to be a recession in 2020. The Bank of England, uh, in fact, in its last uh, meeting, produced their their new forecasts and they thought that the UK was already in recession in Q4. I think on the US economy, it's arguably um, less certain whether there's going to be a recession. It's more tightly run thing. You know, we've seen a lot of indicators, for example, the ISM Manufacturing Index and the S&P Purchasing Managers Index, which are both uh, weaker at the moment, sort of 
suggesting that there's a contraction in output coming. But on the upside, we've seen strength in consumer spending in the US and, of course, a really robust labor market in the US, which is definitely um, helping to prop up um, growth there. And of course, that labour market, as we mentioned, uh, ties in directly to interest rates, which ties in directly to what happens to us here um, and uh, the monetary policy in the UAE, which tends to follow what happens in the US because of that dollar peg. And that's what we asked, Sean. We said, what does all of that, what does the, the global situation mean for us as we start heading into trucking our way through the last month of the year? The UAE economy has been really resilient. The same with the GCC more generally. Um, the economies here have managed to do really well, obviously helped by the fact that uh, we, we're, you know, there's a lot of oil producers here. So the oil price has definitely helped on that front. You know, we've also got benefits of things like the FIFA World Cup, uh, support demand in the UAE and Dubai in particular in this final quarter of the year. Going forward, we'd expect that the growth in the UAE Uh, and the GCC region more generally might slow down into next year, but it's still a real bright spot in comparison to, uh, to some of the other global economies. And that is Jean Walters, a woman you're going to be hearing from, well, more certainly this week, but in general on the Business Breakfast. She is a new economist at Emirates NBD. Other economic stories we're looking at, one of our headlines today is this report from the World Travel and Tourism Council about tourism spending in cities. And Dubai... Way out in front. Oh, beyond, beyond. Lapping the other competitors, (laughs) um, we could say. And it's particularly interesting because it is cumulative. It's not um, sort of geared to how much each tourist spends, in which case the total number of tourists wouldn't matter, would it? If if it was, you know, each tourist spends an average of, I don't know, $1,500 or something. Um, It's not. It's a total. Um, So we win. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Was it a competition? It's always a competition. <laughs> Just under $30 billion in uh, international visitor spending. Um, and that is not even taking in the last month of the year, which is important for us because December is a huge uh, month for tourism. It's also important for the country that came second, which is Doha. They probably would have liked to have seen December's receipts added in <laughs> to the total. Um, but they are at just over half where... The U or where Dubai is $16.8 billion uh, compared to Dubai's $30 billion. Um, London, the same, just over $16 billion. I'm looking at so part of that is volume, just a lot of people coming to the UAE. We opened up earlier, we know this story very well. Dubai had a very good pandemic to an extent, the UAE did as well. But there's, it's not just the volume of tourists. It's the fact that there's a lot of wealthy people here today. For example, here's something that Tom Urka, who's just away for a couple of days, back soon sent me. And it's a bill during the Formula One week in Abu Dhabi from one of the restaurants. I'm not going to name the restaurant, but it might be famous for a butcher who uses salt and dribbles it down his arm. But I'm not, not going to identify the restaurant. Now we it, don't... Might, it might also be famous for having its um, receipts, uh, its bills leaked. This is... A bill, total amount, 615,065 dirhams, of which VAT was 29,000 dirhams. You never see anyone's KFC bill leaked, do you? <laughs> you don't, do you? No. But that's, that's what's happening yeah. here. And it's not, that's but it's not the no, bulk no, of but tourists. it's not, though, because that's the outlier. Yes. We would not be talking about it if that was a, a, something that happened every week, would we? Yeah, we, we? No, but, I mean, you speak informally to the guys at some of the 
big restaurants down at DIFC, and maybe we should get them in here, that, you know, the average spend at tables, mm. you know, if, if we go out to a posh restaurant, at the likes of a DIFC occasionally, which we do, you know, if you're spending 500 dirhams a head, yeah. you're thinking, I pushed the boat out there, but, you know, it was a good night, so that's fine. You know, two and a half thousand dirhams per head is not uncommon now. Um, so, and, that's, so that, and that's not an outlier down at, the, at your posh restaurants or, and I'm sure the Mandarin or the Burj is, is similar. That's kind of normal. It's normal for those kind of restaurants. Yeah, but um, we're, we, we'll get some restaurateurs in to speak about it. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Right then, let's talk about this story coming out of Europe. No more airplane mode. The European Union plans to allow calls on flights, and if it happens there, it's going to happen everywhere. Is it a good thing, though? Joining us in the studio to give us some insight is a partner with the global telecoms, media and technology consulting firm, Analysis Mason, Johan Ajovi. Johan, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Richard. So what was your reaction when you saw this news out of the European Commission that they say that once 5G kicks in, phone calls on planes might get the green light? So in reality, it's already possible to make phone calls on on planes. So since 2006, the European Commission has actually allowed this. And airlines such as Emirates or Etihad have actually made it possible since 2008. And um, they have, uh, Emirates has actually reported uh, that more than 100 million calls have been made uh, and um, uh, SMSs have also uh, been sent and received uh, on airplanes. So it's already happening. It's already happening, but 5G says the European Union will be a game changer because at the moment it's slow, it's inconsistent and it's expensive. But once 5G kicks in, it's going to be... Um, well, as to quote the, the cliche from Thierry Breton, the EU commissioner, the sky is no longer the limit once 5G kicks in. Will 5G be a game changer for these things? It will be, but not so much. So basically, in reality, uh, since 2014, uh, it's possible to actually also have 3G and 4G on board airplanes. So the what's really changing now is that from 2023 onwards, it will be possible to have 5G. And 5G is just about faster speeds, it's just about new services. But in reality, it's already been happening for, you know, a decade. Now, my concern with this is, if I, I, and I travel mostly in economy class, you know, if, if you're sitting next to me and you're a management consultant and you're busy and your clients are calling you all the time and we're flying to Singapore and you're just on the phone all the time, It's going to drive me insane, (laughs) Johan. And you're having an argument with a client. It's just, it sounds like a nightmare. So interestingly, um, there have been different uh, ways that this uh, uh, use of mobile phone have been actually regulated across the globe. So for instance, in the US, it's still not allowed to make phone calls. So you can use your phone, send SMSs, uh, use uh, um, you know, internet and 4G, but you cannot make phone calls. And there have been some resistance from flight attendants to actually allow it. And that's why it's still not been allowed in the, in the US. But in, in, in Europe, also in the region, it's already been possible. Yes, 
it was expensive. Yes, it is expensive. I actually checked on the, uh, one of our you know operator here uh, website last night, uh, and you need you pay twenty dirhams to make calls on airplanes. So. Well, it's probably uh, a time when you actually don't want to spend that money as well as uh, you want the, you know, the, the, the quiet uh, of not making phone calls. Uh, but it's, you know, it's already happening. And hopefully people will actually appreciate that it's, uh, it should remain, as you rightly mentioned, uh, a time when people don't want to be bothered by phone calls of their you know, neighbours. How expensive are we talking? I mean, one of the things Rich and I have been discussing this morning is how it's paid for. Does it count as roaming? Absolutely, it does. So um, whichever mobile operator you're actually um, subscribed to, like Do and Etsalat, they will charge you for the calls or the, the data that you use when you're on airplanes. And uh, since for a couple of years, uh, Do and Etsalat have actually included uh, these mobile data consumption as part of um, roaming bundles. So it's actually not that expensive to uh, use, you know, internet on board airplanes uh, using your, you know, 3G, 4G. Uh, but uh, for phone calls, it was a separate pay uh, per use uh, fee, which was 20 dirhams. So, you know, not the cheapest. What about Zoom calls or WhatsApp calls or whatever else, whatever messaging service you choose to use for your free video calls? Is the internet strong enough now on planes to do that? Or again, will 5G be a game changer for that? I can Zoom with my kids uh, when I'm on my flight next to Johan to Singapore. Absolutely. So basically, the the reality is that the um, the the backhaul, which is basically the connectivity between the plane uh, and the ground, uh, is actually done by satellite, which is which is limited bandwidth. Even though it's growing, so with um, 4G and 5G uh, becoming uh, prevalent now on uh, or in the future on airplanes, uh, you will find that uh, the data use will actually increase. Uh, that some of those uses like you know uh, video calling which weren't really working very well will start working well if there's demand if there's actually you know more people using it uh, as they will increase the, the the size of the satellite pipe linking the plane to the ground finally i'm going to ask you to take our instagram poll <laughs> which is up and running now johan uh, i'm asking okay we can do this but should we do this are you in favor yes it's really convenient or no it's a nightmare and again, I will fall in between. No, no, that's uh, yes or no. <laughs> we deliberately I'm don't more, give an in-between on these polls. <laughs> I'm more on the side of no, it's an inconvenience, but it, yes, it can be practical on some specific cases. Johan, good talking to you. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us in the studio. Johan Ajovi there. He's a partner with the global telecoms, media and technology consulting firm Analysis Mason. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank You're you listening much. to The Business Breakfast, Dubai Eyewater 3.8. Join the conversation either by taking our polls on both Instagram and Twitter. They are live right now. Thanks to producer Isa for putting those up. But also ping us a message, 4001, or use the app. Jeff writes in, I remember watching the first Die Hard movie and they were making calls on the plane. Jeff, thanks very much indeed. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We'll be out digging in more detail to one of our top stories this morning. OPEC Plus keeping its oil output unchanged at an online meeting yesterday. Very pleased to be speaking now to Amina Becker, Deputy Bureau Chief and Chief OPEC Correspondents for the Energy Intelligence Group. Amina, good morning. 
Good morning, Brandy. So a brief online meeting for OPEC+. Plus. What will ministers have been weighing up beforehand? Sure. Uh, just briefly, as you said, the organization yesterday decided to keep their uh, production unchanged, meaning that the 2 million barrels per day cut uh, that they introduced during the last meeting is going to continue until the end of 2023, December 2023. This was an expected result. Brandy, mainly because the group um, was supposed to meet in Vienna in person, and they decided just a few minutes before, uh, uh, sorry, a few days before the meeting, that they're going to turn it into a virtual meeting. Um, and uh, by that, they really managed to uh, tame expectations that they were going to change policy, and the market expected that they just continue the current policy that they have. Which is, as you say, actually oil cuts. Two million barrels a a day was decided at the last meeting. What does all of this mean for supply? Um, It means that supply will still remain tight. However, I do think that it's the correct decision taken by OPEC, just given the fact that there's so many uncertainties, uh, Brandy. We're dealing with lockdowns that are still in China. Uh, There are the sanctions on Russian oil that have been introduced by the EU, uh, and uh, they're going to be capped at $60. And these sanctions actually take place from today. And nobody really knows what the impact is going to be. We're hearing news from Russia that they're going to be cutting production in protest to these sanctions. So potentially we're going to see a tightness in the market. It hasn't happened yet. And when and if that happens, if you get China opening up and if you get a shortage in supply from, uh, from Russia, that's when OPEC Plus needs to consider adding more supply to the market, but we're not there yet. Let's have a chat about those sanctions, that price cap and that uh, ban on Russian energy. We've got the US, we've got EU, uh, and we've got the G7 all making moves there. What could it potentially mean for prices over the weekend, over the winter rather? Um, well, it's uh, it's difficult to say at the moment. We could potentially see higher oil prices if Russia does go ahead with the statements that the officials are making, saying that production, they're going to be cutting production, they're not going to be dealing with any of the countries that impose the caps. At Energy Intelligence, we're expecting that Russia's production would be affected or uh, reduced by around 1.3 million barrels a day. There are numbers out there as much as 2 million barrels a day. OPEC itself expects 850,000 barrels to be cut by Russia. Um, it's, an, it's kind of the numbers are all over the place, but the, you can see the direction. It's going to be a reduction. And when that happens, and if you don't get any additional supply, uh, potentially that could be a higher oil price. How easy is the cap particularly going to be to, to implement and to enforce? It's very difficult to enforce. And this was one of the, the, the kind of tricky parts. Uh, how do insurance companies, shippers, etc., make sure that the oil on board first uh, ensure that I mean, make sure that uh, the the origin or have uh, kind of evidence that this is from uh, from Russia. Two, make sure that it's capped at sixty dollars. It's very tricky. Um, it's just started today. We're going to see. I mean, the reaction from the industry prior to the cuts being actually implemented was that this is not going to work. Um, let's see how it uh, takes effect. Uh, I mean, what we know from now, just speaking to traders, um, this vessel owners, insurance companies, a lot of them are just avoiding uh, Russian crew to start off with, and that's how they're dealing with it.
Uh, so we're looking at a price of about $86, $87 this morning. We were at $81 uh, at one point last week. What does OPEC want to see as a, as a steady price, Amina, and what does it all mean for the UAE? They never mention a price, Brandy. That's something they always say, that they always look to balance market fundamentals rather than price targeting. Um, but I would say just generally for the health and the, the spending of, uh, of uh, many of the economies in the group, uh, I think $80 would, would make sense. Um, but again, this is not something that based on what they say, but just... Uh, um, looking at their, their budgets and, and their spending, we'd say $80. I mean, Rebecca, Deputy Bureau Chief and Chief OPEC Correspondent at the Energy Intelligence Group joining us this morning. Thank you very much for your time. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's get some more detail on one of our top stories this morning. The UAE Cabinet approving over the weekend a nationwide plan to introduce new sustainability standards for buildings, roads and homes. New green building codes, to be simple. They want to Preserve resources, reduce the country's carbon footprint and hit the net zero target by 2050. Giving us some insight now is the guy who leads Altamimi, the law firm, Altamimi's construction and infrastructure practice, Ewan Lloyd. He's a senior counsel. Ewan, good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on Microsoft Teams. Hello, Richard. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, really good. Thank you. Enjoyed this message from His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid over the weekend. What was your first impression? Look, I think it's it's, it's nothing new. Uh, sustainability has been um, a big ticket uh, item in the UAE for, for a long time. So if you kind of trace it back, you look at the, the trackies building regulations. I mean, they, they came in back in 2008. You had the Dubai uh, Green Building Regulations 2010. You got the Estama um, Pearl Ratings. Uh, which came in, in in Abu Dhabi. Um, the various kind of you know, green initiatives in terms of power across UAE. You've got you know uh, solar power plants. We've got uh, nuclear power now as well. Um, there's COP28 coming to Dubai at the at the end of uh, next year. Um, so it's part of, of of a trend, you know. I think for the UAE, and the UAE is really kind of leading the way of becoming a, a very sustainable economy, uh, particularly in in, uh, in this part of the world. But I think the, the important thing about this initiative, which uh, which was announced uh, yesterday, is that it's a, it's it's a uniform approach. So it's going to apply uh, across the U- across the UAE because previously um, you know, different Emirates had different approaches which were similar, but now this kind of you know, unifies uh, the uh, the uh, the approach on a uh, on a federal level, if you like. So I think it's uh, it's very good news, but um, you know, building on 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 the progress which which uh, the UAE has has experienced to uh, to date. Well, Brandy and I were chatting about this earlier, and we've had lots of messages about it. And here's mm-hmm. the thing: the things that you mention. Uh, and, and you could throw in international accreditation like LEED, are essentially mm. optional. Uh, I mean, I was in a university campus here in Media City just a couple of weeks ago, and when you walk through the door and they proudly say, we are a LEED Gold certified building, which is great, but they made that choice. This, and this is the question, and you're the lawyer, so your clients are going to be asking you this, is this going to be compulsory if you're building a new flyover in Fajera? It, it, it's likely to be compulsory. Um, the, the, the detail has yet to be uh, released, as, as you'd expect, but the, the implications are that it will be compulsory, yes. Is that a game changer? I don't think it necessarily is a game changer. Uh, look, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, kind of talk and, and discussion as to whether, uh, you know, you look at the, the, the cost of, of green initiatives um, and are these... 
how do the costs kind of stack up? And okay, you know, there are additional costs to, you know, constructing on a sustainable basis. The difference, you know, surveys out there, you know, some surveys say the, the, the additional cost is maybe, uh, you know, construction costs, maybe, you know, 2%, 3%, 4%, no higher. Um, we look at the, the bigger picture, the, the operating costs of sustainable and, and green buildings tend to be very significantly lower than that of uh, conventional buildings, sometimes up to uh, 20 or, or 30 percent. Um, and also, the you, you can get back up to 20 percent of the, of the construction costs through efficiency savings during the lifespan of a building. So from that perspective, um, it makes they make this initiative does make economic sense. And the other thing to look at as well is um, financing. There's a lot of uh, financing available for green initiatives in the market at the moment. So I think all this has to be kind of looked at. And the other thing as well, of course, is aside from the, 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 the whole, you know, hard numbers, if you like, a lot of intangible benefits to sustainability. Um, so sustainable buildings or green buildings tend to be more, more pleasant environments. They tend to be, they make better use of light, better use of, better use of space. Um, and they tend to be, you know, nicer places to, to be overall. And also, if you look at, you know, what people want in the market, people now in the market are looking at um, sustainability. That's that's very commercially desirable at uh, uh, at the uh, at the moment. Hey, well, we've been speaking to the guys at, at some of the banks who have got they call them different things, but essentially green loans, and you get variable pricing if it's a sustainable project. It's it's not a huge amount of difference, but it is essentially cheaper if you hit certain. Uh, not just sustainability, but ESG as well, environmental, sustainable and governance, but sustainability goals. Is that just a, a, a PR stunt from the banks to say, oh, we've got a green loan or a green sukuk, or is it meaningfully cheaper financing for a building? In our experience, it is meaningful. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot more, there's a lot more uh, credit available for, uh, for green buildings and, and, and the rates are, are lower. So uh, it's, it, and it goes back to what, what people want in the market. People do want sustainable buildings and the banks really Realize that, and they're, and they're servicing what the what the market wants. So I, I don't think it's a gimmick. I think I think it's genuine. What about the flyover in Fajera that I mentioned earlier? Buildings fine. We've been doing that for a while now, but infrastructure, highways. Well, look. I mean, you've got to take a step back and you look at the bigger picture. Um, the, the construction and the building sector relate to about thirty nine percent of energy related emissions, and so it's a very significant amount. And under these these new um, national building regulations. Uh, the UAE has a well. The UAE has, has mandated to cut energy and, and materials and materials to build roads and infrastructure by forty five percent. So this is going to happen. Um, but and well, I think my question the other thing- is: my question is, Ewan, how do you do it? I get with the building how you can do it. There are different ways of building. There are different materials you can use. But with a flyover or an eight lane highway, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of options, are there? Or well, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, look, there are always, always options. You always can look at look at value engineering, looking at you know different sources of materials, um, looking at uh, different ways of uh, of sourcing materials, uh, looking at you know smart construction mechanisms. There are all sorts of ways you know that can be deployed to actually um, make the, the improve the, the sustainability efficiency of of infrastructure projects. That's been done elsewhere in the world, in the US, the UK, for example. So, so it has it has been done. There is a there is a, a, a clear template to uh, to, uh, to to uh, to follow. Okay, just thirty seconds left with you. It's going to be a big talking point down at the Big Five today, the construction event. I'm sure you're going to be down there. You're going to be getting questions from clients. When do you expect to get the detail of this? Just thirty seconds on that. 
I, I think I think I think early early next year I'd say um, I think the, the details will 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 become more and more apparent as the, as time goes by, uh, and like like I say, there won't be anything in in there which is that unusual given what's come before and given all the the, the various uh, sustainability uh, codes and regulations which exist already um, across the UAE, albeit in, in different Emirates. You and great talk to you. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much indeed. That is the voice of the lawyer with Al Tamimi, Ewan Lloyd. He heads their construction and infrastructure practice. Talking about that announcement by Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid over the weekend, new green building and indeed construction codes for the UAE. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.